Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. (laughs) And I'm John. (laughs) Excuse me. And I'm John. We've compiled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered noteworthy and worth talking about, and we're assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time around, the luck of the draw gave us Danny Elfman's score to the 1989 Batman movie, Batman. Batman was written by Sam Hamm and Warren Skarin. Do both of the screenwriters' names rhyme? Based on the comic books by Bob Kane. And it was produced by Peter Goober and John Peters and directed by Tim Burton. Andy, what's Batman all about? It's about Batman. (laughs) Over to you, John. (laughs) In the first feature film portrayal of Batman since the 60s, Michael Keaton dons the cowl. As the Caped Crusader, Kim Basinger plays the photojournalist Vicki Vale, and Jack Nicholson takes a turn as the Joker. It also stars Robert Wool, Billy Dee Williams, Jack Palance, and friend of the podcast, William Hootkins. <laughs> we'll talk about that. All right, you know the drill. Millionaire playboy Bruce Wayne prowls the streets by night. As the Batman, a masked vigilante fighting crime and the demons of his own past. A moral mob henchman Jack Napier falls in a vat of chemicals and is transformed into the insane clown prince of crime, (laughs) the Joker. As the two fight for the soul of Gotham City, (laughs) etc. Good enough? Uh, I have to admit, Andy, it's good enough. So when's the last time you had seen this movie, Andy? I think I'd only seen it once before. Really? And I didn't enjoy it much at the time. (laughs) I remember thinking it was kind of a mess and it didn't feel like it was in the best taste and it sort of had no point. And I enjoyed it better this time around. You said that that was a moment that you remember fondly that your father took you. Oh, yeah. You had a good experience. You enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, we had a good time going to the movie. I don't really have a memory of my review of it. At the time, I think my father kind of felt the same way that you did, which is that, yeah, it's kind of here and there. And I'm curious what held up better for you this time. Uh, I think my expectations were lowered. And also, I went into it looking for the look and the feel. And, you know, this was the first not silly Batman movie. And it was saying, here's what this property is going to be like. And here's what these movies are going to be like. And here's the world of Batman. And that's what it's there to accomplish. And I think it does accomplish that. It does accomplish that. I was looking to it for that. I thought, uh, yeah, it kind of did that in a stylish and enjoyable way. That it doesn't have a story per se didn't really bother me. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was aware of it kind of not having a story, I think because of how many other Batman movies and other you know, superhero origin story movies I've seen now. I was kind of a little bit surprised that it just doesn't bother with origin at all. It's just, yeah, there's what? There's a Batman. Okay, and he does this stuff. It really just sort of hits the ground running and doesn't bother with teaching you the world the same way that comic book movies do now. Yeah, a really striking thing about it that I liked this time around 
was that it doesn't even play to the idea that the audience doesn't know who Batman yeah, is exactly. or doesn't know who Bruce Wayne is. It doesn't make a game out of that because, yeah, you know who he is. You know which one's <laughs> Batman. It's that guy. Well, it kind of fakes you out in the very beginning, right? Because the first thing you see is a mother and a father taking their kid out of a movie theater and trying to catch a cab. And then they get mugged in an alley. And it's kind of making you believe that that's going to be the origin. That's little Bruce Wayne with his parents about to get killed. But no, then it kind of tricks you. And in fact, the adult Batman shows up to beat up the muggers. Right. But that only works as a trick if the audience already knows everything there is to know about Batman. The whole movie is for people who already know about Batman. Yeah, exactly. The concept behind the production is if we make a movie about comic book characters that doesn't trivialize the material but shows respect for it and that matches the investment that comic book fans have in it there is a huge audience willing to pay us millions and millions of dollars to have done that and they were right and that's what this movie did and they continue to be right they continue to be right so yeah this is a pretty important movie in the history of hollywood right it really is yeah you know famously jack nicholson got a better deal in the contract negotiations than michael keaton did because he pulled a george lucas and he insisted that he get a cut of all of the merchandising and uh, boy there was a lot of merchandising and so he really made a mint from it but yeah this uh, was sort of the first drop in the ocean of comic book movie merchandising that we're all drowning in i think part of what was unsatisfying to me about it the first time i watched it and part of what i accept about it now is that this movie smells like producers <laughs> yes yeah. movie has the feeling of a kind of scheme yeah, yeah. to it like if we build it they will come and this is what we need to build it needs to have the batman logo on it if it can tell a story that'll be a bonus well Maybe the phenomenon of marketing this movie can be a way into talking about the music to this movie because they started out, the producers did, with some kind of top-down marketing-driven ideas about what the music was going to be in this movie and do. Yeah. The way that they wanted the music to work, well, it really reminds me of, I mean, can you guess what it reminds me of? Yeah, that story about uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Bet you didn't think we were going to say Lawrence of Arabia in this episode. But yeah, in the making of Lawrence of Arabia, the producers had this idea that, well, we're going to attract prestige and attention to this movie by recruiting a prestigious British composer to write British music and a prestigious, you know, Arab-adjacent composer to write Arabic music. So they tried to wrangle Benjamin Britten to write the British music and Benjamin Armenia to write the other music. Aram Kachaturian. Thank you. And, you know, poor little Murray Jar in the middle was just like the uh, employee in the music department who was tasked with, yeah, yeah, you know, make this stuff run, make the trains run while these other big heavy hitters are making the music. And then turned out he got the whole job after all. I feel like it's a very, very comparable story where the producers for this movie did the kind of equivalent move for 1989, which was let's get the biggest stars we can get to shine glitz and glamour and hype on this movie. The idea was they were going to get Prince to write music for The Joker and Michael Jackson to write music for Batman. The composer that the director wanted to use, the composer that had scored the director's previous movies, uh, he was just going to be, you know, the guy who fit that music together. Well, you know, sure enough, just like Maurice Jarre did, he wound up getting the whole job. I guess we should say the name of this composer now. Uh, it's Danny Elfman. Oh, it's Danny Elfman. You know, Danny Elfman was hired because he was Tim Burton's choice, because he had done Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Beetlejuice. 
by this point. And Beetlejuice, and Beetlejuice, yeah. I think when he was hired, he understood that he was to be the composer. And then it was while he was visiting the set to get a sense of things and get the flavor of the production that one of the producers came over to him and said, I, just so you know, here's how it's going to work, and told him this stuff about Prince. And Michael Jackson. Right, well... I don't think Michael Jackson ever did anything no. at all. Right? No, he never did. But just a pipe dream. Neither did Kajaturian for Lawrence of Arabia, but that was the plan. That's right. Yeah, well, producers think big or small, whatever. They come up with ideas and stick to them until they... <laughs> until they don't. And yeah, the story that Danny Elfman tells is that they told him, oh, you're going to coordinate this stuff. Right, you're going to coordinate it. Uh, you can just hear a producer saying that to you, can't you? And he says he mulled it over and it really rankled him and made him feel like that's not what he wanted to be doing. So he called them and said, no, I, I don't want to do it. Yeah, he turned it down. And then agonized about why did I block myself out of the biggest movie I could possibly ever do? What's my problem? For like a month, he said. Yeah, he spent a month, you know, beating himself up about it, thinking he had thrown his career away. And he also said that in that month, meanwhile, Prince wrote a score. I had not heard this before I had listened to this particular interview. Yeah, that's the only place I've heard reference to that. Have you ever heard of there being any remnants of the Prince musical score for this movie? Well, we have to wonder what that is, because what there certainly is, is an entire album. The, sure. quote, soundtrack from Batman, which is a Prince album full of songs, one of which appears at the end credits, two of which appear in the middle of the movie. Yeah, when they're in the museum and then the parade, I think, towards the end. Right. So there's Prince songs in this. He may have just written these songs and written like uh, extended instrumental versions of those songs and said, here's my score. It must be something like that. But Elfman said that Tim Burton called him up and said, you know, we're putting this music we got from Prince up against the movie. And yeah, it's not working. It's not the movie I want to make. I want you to do it, you know, like you've done my previous movies. I mean, I don't think that Tim Burton was ever like, I want it to be Prince and had to be convinced otherwise. Tim Burton wanted to oh, work no. with Danny Elfman. I think it's that the producers had to realize that the benefit of being able to say score by Prince was not worth the price of the score being by Prince. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, they got their cake and ate it, too, because they really featured the Prince songs that are in the movie. Prince has his own credit right after Elfman's credit at the top of the picture. And, you know, obviously that soundtrack was heavily promoted. But to the producer's credit, he really came around on Elfman and became a real supporter of him and the score he did for this movie. And in an unprecedented move, he actually made sure that there were two soundtrack albums produced, one the Prince one and one with nearly the full original score by Elfman. And that had never been done. Yeah, and that went on to be something that started to happen often in the next decade or so. Yeah. But yes, I think that was the first one. It was. All right, so here we are. Elfman has the job after thinking he had it and then thinking that he had lost it and then having it again. Another funny thing about that story is that during the month when he was not employed by the movie, he had already written the theme. That happened after he had visited the set to get a sense of things. And he says that when he was flying back from London where they were shooting... On the airplane, mulling it over in his head, he came up with the theme. Not just with the notes of the theme, but with the whole arrangement. Yeah, he. it's a funny story. He says that he kept running to the bathroom on the airplane because it was marginally quieter in there. And he had a little tape recorder or something, and he was kind of singing all of the different parts of the whole arrangement that kind of merged fully formed in his head about it. 
uh, and he was like, I got to get this down. I got to get this down because as soon as, <laughs> as soon as I hear something else, they're going to start playing some Beatles songs in the airplane and then I'm going to be done. This whole dreamscape composition that's occurred to me is going to be gone. So he obsessively went into the bathroom and sung every part that he could hear in his head for this theme. He sung the bum, the rhythmic stuff and then he sang the and all of that and the he went into the bathroom again and again and did this and the flight attendants got worried about him then he said he got back to his studio and played the tape and of course it sounded like <laughs> and he said but you know he was able to pick out you know like and he was like oh yeah right 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 and came back up in his memory and he was able to recreate the theme as he had heard it That is the theme that is in the movie that you hear at the beginning, you hear when Batman's being a hero. You hear it all through the movie. In fact, I'd venture to say that there is not really any other thematic material in the movie. Right. I mean, and we can put some asterisks on that later, but really, yes, it's a one-theme movie. It doesn't have a contrasting theme like uh, right. sometimes we talk about. There's like the hero theme and the love theme. Yeah, there's not a Vicky Vale theme. There's not really a Joker theme either. Yeah, well, both of those are we can put asterisks on and discuss. Yes, that's true. But I would say that the large majority of the material that the score is made out of and the achievement that the score is, is contained in this title track. Not to say that he doesn't do other things, but I think this is where it all is. Yeah, I'll put an asterisk on that. I got a lot of asterisks here, but I'll agree with it to the 75%. I think there's other stuff elsewhere in it. We'll talk about the other stuff. But like I said, what the movie is accomplishing is saying, this is what Batman's all about. Yeah. And here he's written the piece that does it so well that we are suffering through comic book movies (laughs) once a week for the rest (laughs) of time. It really does something special, this piece, don't you think? It really does something special. And I don't know if any of the umpteen comic book movies between then and now have really had a theme that quite accomplishes what this does. I think they've all been a little bit in its shadow. Yes, including later comic book music by Danny Elfman, who was hired to do tons of this stuff afterward. Yeah, like he did the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. He got called upon to do this, and everybody got called upon to do this sort of a thing for this sort of a thing. Okay, so why is this an effective theme? Well, it has a very recognizable, easily contained nugget. It's really the four notes. Bum, 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 bum. Well, I would think of the main motive as one, two, three, six, five. Don't you think that's kind of the main? Yeah. Well, when you have something that's simple, you know, those are just simple notes in a scale, and they're very carefully, judiciously chosen. But when you have something that's just a few notes like that, you immediately have access to an incredible range of ways that you can treat that. So you can play it slow. Or you can play it fast. And he goes back and forth and he does a lot of different treatments of playing it slow, playing it fast. A wonderful thing that he does is constructs a kind of longer 
sense of melody, even though the melody itself never gets longer. He constructs a longer flow by using different rhythmic versions of that theme, trading off against each other so that it goes there's one version of it, and then it throws to a different version of it. And then it's sort of responded to by a different version of it. It's able to be both this little molecule that you can remember and recognize everywhere and also the sweep of 16 bars worth of forward motion. And then he gets to a place which kind of sounds like it's the B theme, like it's the bridge of the tune. Right. But you look at it and it's the same thing again. It's the same notes. It's going up and down the same little figure. Right. It's enjoying all of the possibilities of this little motive. There's something really exciting to me about the amount of energy that gets put into and comes out of shaking its rhythmic alignment constantly. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of the thing kind of bubbling. You know, it can't settle into a groove because it has all of this energy that it's constantly unleashing. It's flexing and stretching and contracting and expanding. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Speaking of groove, though, what we're looking at on the screen over the opening titles is we're flying through this visualization. (laughs) Through a groove. Through a groove, uh, (laughs) which at the end, the camera pulls out and it turns out to be the bat symbol that we've kind of been flying around. We don't know exactly what we're looking at. But, you know, I think another way of characterizing the same thing that you were just saying, that it's working things out and it's piecing things together as it goes along, is that it's taking this item and it's turning it over and looking at it from every direction. It kind of also gels with the idea of, well, we're flying around and gaining different perspectives on this shape. That's what's happening in the visual here. And then it pulls out. And then we see what the shape is. And it's kind of the sum of all of those different perspectives the music has had on what the shape is kind of add up in the same way. It's true. That makes me want to talk about just the difference between The bat symbol and whether or not the negative space around the bat symbol is the Joker's mouth laughing. (laughs) Have you ever heard that? Somebody told me that once. Maybe it was my father, actually, when we went to see that movie that time. I haven't heard that, but in the DVD thing, Peter Goober, one of the producers, says that when they were first shown that, he thought, is it a throat? Yeah. If you squint, you can see, like, the little curves on the underside of the bat wing are, like, big molars or something. And then he has two uvulas, if you look at it that way. I don't think that's part of the canon that the Joker has two uvulas. So that's why this theory falls apart for me. There's something, it's something like that. Although he could, after that terrible plastic surgery, who knows what his issues are. (laughs) I want to say some stuff about how this differs from the concept of a hero theme previously. Mm, Sure. Because it does have that triplet march ostinato going underneath it. Which it has in common with the prior famous cinematic superhero theme, the Superman theme, which I'm sure we'll talk about someday, which also has, you know, and it has all this forward momentum and it sounds like the heroic march forward toward action and justice and so forth. And there's a reason why that would be in a superhero movie. But Superman and, you know, the Lone Ranger, anyone who's charging forward toward Daring Do, you know, uh, Robin Hood that we talked about, those themes depict their wonderfulness, their goodness, and their inevitable triumph. That's sort of the emotional subject matter of those themes. 
this piece of music weds that energy with this, first of all, murky, minor, eerie, gothic kind of modality. Gothamic. Gothamic. Thank you. And also, it's full of these chord changes that are not strong moves, you know, from five to one or two to five or four to five. They're not declarative like that. Like, listen to a change like this, which is really where Danny Elfman spends a lot of his time. Yeah, this kind of a change is super important to him. It's kind of a sidestep. It's a change of direction. Yeah, I hear it as kind of revelatory, especially these ones that are like a major third apart. The two chords have, you know, only one note in common, but they do have a note in common. And it gives this quality of something flipping around and you see the reverse face Mm -hmm. of it. Sort of transmuting right in front of your eyes and it's like, oh, oh, that's what it was. Right, like the bat symbol becoming a joker (laughs) mouth. Or more to the point, Mm -hmm. Bruce Wayne becoming Batman, (laughs) etc. You don't say. I don't. Much of the score is built out of like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> And I don't think prior to Danny Elfman and this score, I don't think that that was really associated with heroism. And I think that by making that association, he built something. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant because I think it does match up to what the ethos of comic books was for people who were into them. As soon as you hear one of those changes, you feel like, oh, there's underlayers here. There's mm-hmm. something spooky and potentially psychological, and there's a foggy netherworld. Potential. I think that's an important word. I think it makes it sound like, oh, you think this is the court? Well, it could just as easily be this. You know, you have to kind of have the weight of this whole other potential space weighing on you. I asked you last time, what's your favorite scoring moment? My favorite scoring moment relates to what I'm talking about. What's your favorite scoring moment in this movie? Oh, gee, I should have seen this one coming. Do I have a favorite scoring moment? Well, you think about it while I say what mine is. Okay. My favorite, far and away, the best scoring moment in this movie is the cue called Descent into Mystery, which happens a little more than halfway through the movie when Batman, dressed as Batman, has Vicky Vale in his car and is chooses to bring her to the Batcave. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know what? As you were starting to talk, I was like, you know, I really like that Batmobile moment. Maybe that's what I'm going to say. Are you going to say when he drives into the Batcave in the Batmobile? Yes, of course. Yeah, it's great. Oh, that's a great moment. Hey, we did it. We did it. Very good. We have the same moment. And what you're seeing on screen here is a car that they have rigged up to be the Batmobile, so that's kind of cool. And he's wearing the Bat costume, and that's cool, and they're giving each other tense glances in the car. But it really is just some shots of a car driving. And then, yes, he drives through a magic wall that looks like a cliff. It's not magic. It's a very high-tech, like, holographic projection. Sufficiently sophisticated technology is indistinguishable (laughs) from magic. What's the quote? It's magic, John. I see. And the score for this series of shots of driving is, as the cue title says, a descent into mystery. Here, I think Danny Elfman grabs onto the mystique that gets people to care about the whole Batman setup. Well, have you said what the music does in this moment that it kind of hasn't done yet that makes it so welcome and interesting? Yeah, he reserves some chord changes for this moment that we haven't heard before. Yeah.
mean, the thing that struck out to me is that there's a big diminished chord. We haven't heard a diminished chord. And there's then it also the a major, major chord. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we haven't heard major chords in this whole world. It's taking all of this minor, grim, chung, chickada, chung, chickada energy that it has established this momentum of the dark knight in Gotham City and all of his crime fighting. It keeps that going, but it feels like a ray of sunshine is singing out within this dark world. Well, the other thing that's new in this cue is this fake religioso chanting, the Carmina Burana stuff, where there's a choir going, to some syllables chosen to sound like Latin, I believe that they are confirmedly not singing any real words. But this evocation of spiritual depth, you know, something behind the curtain. What you're looking at is just a curtain and there's something profound and awe-inspiring and veiled. The subtext of the scene is Batman is letting this woman into his private sanctum. What are his secrets? What's his psychology? What drives this person? What is he revealing by showing her his secret life? This stuff, the filming of it and the scripting of it and the significance in this movie is is nothing. It's just, yeah. It doesn't add up to anything. But yeah. it's the right moment to give this full force to and Elfman is on to it. He knows what the mythic resonance of it is and he sticks this bigger sound than we've heard before right on the right moment and there's a thrill even for me and I just don't care about or identify with Batman (laughs) but at this scene I was like whoa here we go. Yes it's true. Yeah you're absolutely you're dead on it. Take my word for it again. We had the same moment again. But you know what's the giveaway that it doesn't actually matter in this movie, that the script doesn't really make anything out of out of anything, is that, you know, later in the movie, she just shows up in the Batcave. Like, Alfred just leads her in there, and Michael Keaton's there in his glasses, not in Batman costume, and then they're like, oh, yeah, we're just having a conversation now. There's no moment of revelation. Yeah, and they apparently got in trouble with fans for that. Every interview about the making of this movie, Tim Burton is like, apparently I wasn't supposed to let Ricky <laughs> Veil into the Batcave. <laughs> they really made sure I heard about that. I don't really care about whether he was supposed to do it from the comic book canon. I'm just saying that this screenplay doesn't seem to be processing it correctly within this movie. Yeah, so this is the main theme of the movie. It has different guises, it has different shapes, different rhythms, but I think it always has the same meaning, really, which is Batman, Batman stuff, and I feel like it is always welcome. It really gets used a lot. It really is the kind of go-to move whenever Batman is on the screen, and I'm happy to hear it each and every time. It never wears out its welcome to me. Because it doesn't exactly represent the character in action. Hmm. It kind of represents the character in the world or something in between the character and the world. Yes, I was being too reductive. You're definitely right. But I think that's also an innovation here, that the thing being sold is not the character necessarily. It's the character in relation to the world, and the music can be somewhere in between them and that's again why that descent into mystery is so lovely because you know batman himself is not exempt from the awe and mystery is like he doesn't know all the secrets of his own heart Hmm. it's not like oh if only we were close enough friends with batman we wouldn't have to have such mysterious music it's just a existential 
principle of living in the Batman world that things feel like this. That's just what it feels like to be there. Yeah, and like I was saying, he comes back to this theme, this material, again and again. There's many examples of the music doing something else in some other mode, in some other style, and you know, our attention is drawn back to Batman, something or other, and we come back to this from somewhere else. I'm just always happy when it does that. So you said there is no theme for Vicky Vale. There are several cues representing, you know, tender romantic scenes between the two of them. Yeah, that's a good point. There are. In fact, in one of them, and I think this is what you hear when they actually see them in bed together, you kind of hear a romantic piano version of the theme. And, you know, I'm going to say, I guess this is an exception to what I just said. <laughs> I, I don't think it works in this mode, does it? Yeah, that's not a very good cue. It's not. Why isn't it a good cue? I think one thing that needs to be pointed out about it is that the string writing is off. It's unidiomatic in terms of how you should deploy a string section. It's the sort of thing you might expect from somebody who doesn't have classical training in the proper deployment of the different instruments that make up the string family and their different ranges and strengths and weaknesses and the way that they fit together, but instead somebody who is picking the notes out from just a piano keyboard and treating them all homogeneously, which you kind of can't do, and which is why the strings are, even though they're real strings, they kind of sound synthy. sounds like he's using the patch that is piano plus strings on a synth. That's right. It sounds like he's playing these chords kind of wholesale as a homogenous patch rather than picking out which string should actually be playing which notes. Yeah, another way that this sounds inexpert, and this may sound snobby, but mm -hmm. uh, it's coming from the heart. Is this not really how you're supposed to use the piano itself? You know, a beginner pianist might be told, well, you play a chord in your left hand and a melody in your right hand. But paradoxically, that sounds bad on a <laughs> piano. You really shouldn't play a full three-note chord in the left hand in a, like, professionally produced cue. It sounds... It just doesn't sound good. It sounds clumsy. There's a plodding kind of quality. It's better to play like two notes with each hand. If you're a beginner, try like moving the middle note up to your right thumb. Just to, this is a public service announcement. Yeah. Do more with your thumbs than you are. <laughs> your thumbs should be more involved than you think. It did occur to me that maybe some of these cues that sound kind of wimpy, like they just yeah, sound. Yeah, that's right. It wasn't clear to me whether that was just the best he knew how to do or whether there was an element of something that I want to talk more about, which is finding the comic book flavor of the whole thing that maybe he thought, you know, only a very wimpy, corny concept of love is appropriate mm. here. We are not going to have some soaring strings for this stupid movie. I am skeptical of such Yeah, so am I. Anyway, here's the reason I brought it up in the first place. We hear a major version of the five notes. Da-da-da-da-da. Except the thing is that in the liner notes for the album, this is called Love Theme Asterisk, and the asterisk says, incorporates Scandalous by Prince, which is the song that you hear at the end of the end credits, Yeah, which is this kind of ridiculous getting it on music by Prince. 
And you're going to anger a lot of Prince fans here. I think Prince was a brilliant, one-of-a-kind musician and bottomless talent. But, like, listen to this. This is silly, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair enough. At least you got your caveat in there. Okay, anyway, here's the important thing to know about the song Scandalous. It has that figure, the major version of the five notes, da-da-da-da-da, as the recurring thing in it. And on the album, Elfman's composition has to give credit to the Prince song, which is crazy to me. How is it a coincidence? Like, Prince wrote a thing that sounded like his minor theme in major, and then when he used the major version, it had to be considered to be Prince's song? Or... I don't know what to think of this. Yeah, I did see that. I really think that's a coincidence. The Prince melody is in a different place in the chord. It's a very ordinary scalar fragment. I think it's a coincidence that they just kind of seized upon, you know, as a marketing tie-in. I honestly don't know what to think because it's really hard for me to imagine Elfman saying, sure, I'll write using Prince's stuff. And it just happens to be the same theme. No, no, it's clearly the major version of the Batman theme. And I think that's borne out by the fact that he uses the big major version of the Batman theme explicitly as the, unmistakably as the major version of the Batman theme at the end of the picture. It's like the big punchline. It is the big punchline. It's clear that he, you know, had that as a move he wanted to make, was to take the major version of the Batman theme, which we've already documented, you know, he came up with before he heard any Prince material. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I think it's a coincidence that they uh, just wanted to make a little tie-in for the soundtrack to sound like. But anyway, let's get back to talking about... What Danny Elfman knows and what he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. And so now that we're transitioning into, I think, this segment of our Danny Elfman conversation, I just want to put out a caveat that... It might sound like I say snobby things about music education and who does and doesn't have it and what it means. And I just want to get out of the way ahead of time that I don't mean to be snobby and I have enormous admiration for Danny Elfman. But nonetheless, it must be said that he has a very peculiar and unusual entree into the world of film scoring. Yeah, it's actually funny that we're approaching it from this direction because that one thing with the piano and the strings is pretty much the only thing in the score where I would say it's a detriment. My attitude is that for the most part, everything we're about to say about his peculiar background works in his favor and has a lot to offer. So I don't have much snobby to say. Oh, I mean, I can find some others. Find it. Yeah, let's fight about it. (laughs) No, I don't want to fight about it. I'm just going to say like there's a few other spots where like the orchestration just sounds a little funny. Things aren't. All right, this is a rich topic. So let's lay out what the story is. Who is Danny? Elfman. Well, Danny Elfman grew up in Los Angeles, and he became the music director of a kind of ragtag theater troupe music performance ensemble known as the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Right, directed by his brother. Right, his brother roped him into being the music director for this group because he had marginally more experience playing music than his brother did, which was not much. He did not study music as a child, which, you know, most musicians will say you need to do. He kind of taught himself how to play the violin on the fly as he was traveling through Europe. He picked up a few other instruments along the way and he's all self-taught all well after most traditional music education begins so it was very much a seat of his pants seat of everyone's pants kind of endeavor this mystic knights of the oingo boingo which it should be said is different from the band that he went on to be known for which was known simply as 
Oingo Boingo, which is kind of like a new wave band that played in, through the 80s and early 90s that really sounds nothing like this group that he played with in the 70s called the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, that was really more like a theater troupe. Uh, you know, they had all kinds of set pieces and stage effects, and yeah. it sounds like a show that I really would have liked to have seen. It's like an avant-garde cabaret clown show kind of thing. There you go. With a, a lot of music. There are actually little snippets that you can see on YouTube, and you can hear what kind of arrangements Danny Elfman was writing for this troupe in their like you said, very rough and tumble kind of raucous theater vibe. And he, during this time, had kind of forsworn the current popular music. He wasn't listening to any pop music on the radio. He says that he constrained himself pretty much to pre-bop jazz, like Duke Ellington kind of stuff. Yeah, he would appear in these shows kind of doing impressions of Cab Calloway. Like, this is him. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff he was really into. And the kind of stuff that he really kind of cut his musical teeth taking dictation from and cribbing arrangements from those old jazz records for the troupe to play. That really is a great musical education, is hearing those charts and figuring out how they work. So that was the kind of stuff that he was teaching himself to do and to you know experience all the instruments that are involved in that. Yeah, and he also, during this time, wrote at least one piece that was sort of his crazy clown show version of a classical piece that he called Piano Concerto One and a Half or something like that. Is that right? Piano Concerto One and a Half. So I think that this is a clip of that. It is not identified as that, but I think that this must be it. And it's all kind of self-taught and figured out on the fly. You know, really nobody's telling him what to do with anything. Nobody's telling him what any rules are, but he's figuring them out and he obviously has a talent for it. Yeah, I think what's really striking about his background is that there are people who came out of pop music and then became a film composer, that happens. And then there's people who come out of the jazz world and then they become film composers. Those are kind of coherent traditions in themselves. Right, And the interesting thing about Elfman is that because it was this kind of avant-garde cabaret where you don't know what you're going to see, that's not a tradition with a set of practices and a set of expectations. It really is free-for-all for him to make up what he wanted, and it would characterize his troupe and no one else, and it could encompass anything from any kind of music. World musics and jazz and classical music, and yeah. he was working in a little bubble where he was entitled to develop a crazy musical technique, freely drawing on any of this stuff, yeah. obligated to no coordinating traditions. So then to draw the story forward, how does he get from there to Oingo Boingo, the band? Well, like I said, he had kind of quarantined himself from the contemporary pop music of the day. And the thing that got through to him that he heard and grabbed his attention was English ska music. And I just love that because it's it's so perfect that if you take all of the stuff that we were just naming, the crazy clown show cabaret band and old-time jazz and you stir it up with ska going <laughs> you get Danny Elfman right
you can really hear how those things, you know, are the ingredients that made him. And so, anyway, inspired by what he heard in that particular strain of pop music, he said, oh yeah, I want to be, uh, I want to do a rock band. And basically, the Mystic Knights dissolved and essentially reformed a lot of the same musicians as the band simply Oingo Boingo. He admits himself how confusing it is that the names are so similar. Right, but then he was doing Oingo Boingo, the band, at the same time as the first 10 or 15 years of his film scoring career. Well, we got to say how he hooks up with Tim Burton now. So he got into film scoring because he scored a crazy off-the-wall midnight movie, kind of last hurrah of the Mystic Knights movie, Forbidden Zone, for his brother. And that's the kind of thing that is right up Paul Rubin's Pee Wee Herman's alley. And it is like no surprise that he saw that and thought those are the kinds of people I want working on my movie. And so then when Pee Wee Herman started making a movie with Tim Burton, they uh, said, let's get that guy who did that crazy midnight movie thing. And uh, they got him because it turned out he was really interested in that. Yeah, but he had never scored a movie before. They like broached the idea to him in the first place. He had never scored a normal movie. (laughs) They called a meeting with him. He thought they just wanted him to write a song or something or they wanted to license one of Oingo Boingo's songs and they were like no we want a score and he's like oh a score can I can I do that and the thing that kind of convinced him oh I guess I can do that is that piano concerto one and a half he was like oh yeah I know how to make orchestral parts and you know you just got to chart out a certain number a dozen two dozen different things are happening and I can do that I've done that for this all right let's try it And then he, yeah, found that he had, just like he sort of accidentally found that he had this musical ability that he had, he also accidentally found that he had this storytelling scoring sensibility. You know, a lot of this stuff is coming from an interview that I think both of us found pretty fascinating and worth recommending to the listenership. If you're a Danny Elfman fan, you should really check this out. It was done by this group called the Film Music Foundation, founded by Elmer Bernstein. Hmm. If you go to filmmusicfoundation.org and click interviews, they've got full-length, in-depth interviews with a lot of significant people. And the Danny Elfman one there, two hours of him talking about his whole career, was uh, worth your while, we thought. So uh, check it out. Yeah, it was definitely worth our while. We were regurgitating a lot of it here. Yeah, he's interviewed by noted film music historian John Burlingame, who does a great job. But you know, when you named those ingredients that you mixed together to make Danny Elfman, you left out one. That's true. It's an important ingredient. Which is that he did, in fact, love film music and especially well first I'll just say Nino Rota who relates to the umcha umcha but that's not really the salient one in this movie I think the silhouette overlooking this whole score is that of Bernard Herrmann, who was his favorite composer as a kid. He said his favorite movies were the fantasy sci-fi movies that Herrmann did in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, there's this whole other vein of Herrmann's output that we didn't even touch on at all in the two previous Bernard Herrmann episodes we've done. But yeah, he did this whole run of fantasy movies that are perhaps best known for having this stop-motion animation special effects by Ray Harryhausen. Right. The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and the Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, Mysterious Island... And, and journey, journey to the, to the center, center of the earth. earth. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> this must be discussed. Yeah, it must. So remember when I was talking about those changes earlier, the movement by a third? That is a very Bernard Herrmann thing to do. Mm-hmm. These chord changes that they're strong and bold in the sense of revealing something in the moment, but they're not part of a long kind of discourse. They're like an effect and then you can repeat that effect. Bernard Herrmann loves that sound, and the main titles to Journey to the Center of the Earth are like a compendium of that. It's just, you know, this change to this. 
this change to this. Mm-hmm. This is a very characteristic Herman move. This one that I said sort of forms the go-to for Elfman. There are a lot of things about the style that are very Herman. This short motif that we've been talking about, the five notes. Right. That is totally how Herman operates. Yeah, Herman has these short cellular motives that he can do any number of architectural things with and stack them around. And another thing that Elfman, I think, takes from Herman is the kind of sense of layers of activity. Like, here's the action sequence at the Axis chemical plant that eventually culminates in Jack Napier becoming the Joker. Yeah, there's this repeated bass figure that sets up, and it keeps going, and then other stuff happens on top of it. Yeah, and the stuff that happens on top is very uh, call and response. It's like... Yeah, that's right. These instruments over here have something to say. And then these guys over here have to say... That is how Bernard Herrmann operated. On the other hand, I mean, this is what I love about the Elfman style. Bernard Herrmann's personality was that he was doing these things because I think, like I said in one of the Herrmann conversations, he had a personality like a brick wall. (laughs) This is my way. It's going to be like this. It doesn't need to be more than this. It just needs to be this. I'm just going to put this block here and this block here, and you're going to like it. And Danny Elfman brings a completely different personality to the same toolbox the effect that it's being put to is almost completely different because the spirit of it is mischief and playful and mischief is such an important concept yeah throughout all of it you can absolutely hear that he grew up in a seat of his pants devil may care you know anything is fair game kind of a world and you can hear him grinning about it You can hear that he's just thrilled that he gets to throw this kooky stuff together. Yes, so let's wrap up talking about Herman by playing this. So this is what you were getting at. We were both getting at. This is what everyone's getting at. In Journey to the Center of the Earth, and in fact at the beginning of the suite from Journey to the Center of the Earth, that Danny Elfman probably had this album that Herman recorded in the 70s. Yeah, doesn't he say in that interview that Journey to the Center of the Earth, in fact, was the very movie in which he first noticed that a score was having an effect on him. And he said, oh, the music is doing that. And it's this guy whose name is on the screen now. He's doing this to the movie. Isn't that something? I think he had that kind of revelation about this very score. Yeah, but this album was released. Bernard Herrmann put an album called, I think, The Fantasy Film Worlds of Bernard Herrmann. The first track on this album and the first thing in that track Uh from this suite from Journey to the Center of the Earth is the sunrise cue in Journey to the Center of the Earth when uh, James Mason gets to the top of the volcano and the light shines through the thing and shows him where the hole to the center of the Earth is. And here's the sound of the mystical revelatory sunrise. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that so? Yeah, even that. Even the glockenspiel is in there. Even the glockenspiel. Huh. All right. (laughs) We've said before in this show that we are cool with music sounding like other music. How do you, uh, what do you think about this? Because to be clear, this is very, very obviously a direct influence, influence is even too weak a word, on the beginning of the main title theme to Batman. It is the same notes. It is the same technique of having overlapping entrances of it kind of build up and up and pyramid out. 
And then over that, you hear that same doo 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 dee doo doo doo. Little bell figure, exactly the same. I mean, yeah, then it goes to a different thing, and then other things happen. But boy, this is obviously, you know. The same. The same. All right, so what do you make of it, Andy? I think the way that this happened is that Elfman had listened to this so many times that it was deep in his head, and he did not realize he was recreating it note for note. <laughs> that is my guess. I think that he composed it again, which is something that happens to people. Oh, that absolutely is something that happens. I, <laughs> I have a list of like famous songs that I have composed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Where I go, oh, you know what would be a good note to come after this note would right. be this note. Ooh, and then if I can change the chord to this, aha, uh-huh, oh, let's see what it all sounds like together. Oh, wait a minute, that's uh, The Lady is a Tramp. That song's already there. At least you recognize it when you've done it instead of like yeah. three weeks later someone tells you. Well, that's happened too. Even if that's not the case, even if this was uh, homage or he was like, I'll just rip that off because it's perfect. I kind of don't care about any of that because... Because it's perfect? If this were a movie about a journey to the center of something, then I would say that it's a plagiarism. But, you know, if you put on Journey to the Center of the Earth and you put on Batman, your experiences don't overlap at all. (laughs) What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. It doesn't make sense that he would have intentionally ripped it off. I don't know. You know, this is the biggest movie he's scored. It's this enormous blockbuster. It's the first superhero. It's the first action-y kind of movie in this way that he's scored. Whether it was conscious or not, it makes so much sense that he reached back to the thing that first struck him about film music. And I am totally willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that it was unconscious. Yeah, if his attitude at that stage in his career was, you know, hey, for this little bit, I could copy that thing. As I've said before, it just doesn't really rub me the wrong way. Like, I get why you copy things. Fine, copy, whatever. (laughs) All right. Did you also note that a couple times, and only in the last sequence, where they're walking up some stairs that look like the stairs of Vertigo? Yeah, that's what I was just about to say, is that I think that there are some intentional overt nods to Herman that he does. Yeah, in that sequence uh, at the end of the movie when Joker for some reason is taking Vicky Vale to the top of the Gotham Cathedral and boy those stairs with a shot down this squared off spiral staircase looks exactly like the shot from Vertigo and Batman is climbing the stairs which, wait a minute why, why is Batman climbing the stairs? Why can't he just grapple up to the top of them, right? Uh, anyway, Batman is climbing the stairs and I think In this case, Elfman is consciously referencing Hermann, an intentional homage to the kind of suspension and resolution chords that we talked about in Hermann's score for Vertigo. I mean, intentional in the sense that you think the audience is supposed to notice it? I don't know. No, not necessarily that they're supposed to notice it, but that he was aware of doing that. I don't know. You can't miss that that staircase looks like the Vertigo staircase. And, you know, he knew that movie for sure. Look, here's his strength, is that as a self-taught person with his own voice and his own technique... He has an incredibly strong, intuitive, and enthusiastic kind of gleeful use of musical Mm -hmm. materials, use of the orchestra, use of just being a score. Like, I think the thing that he's unparalleled at is revealing why something is fun or how something is fun, why an individual moment in the scene is fun, why the whole attitude of the movie is fun. There's this sense of mischievous glee coming through all of it, which I think relates directly to his upbringing as a mischievous clown, essentially. Yeah. That shootout cue that you played a little of before. 
I don't think any other composer would have done that in 6-8. I mean, technically it's conducted in 3, but the ostinato is a 6-8 ostinato. That's such a goofy, playful kind of... Yeah. It's awfully circusy for a shootout. Yeah, you're right about that, and I think that there's a lot of stuff in the movie that is a little bit to the goofy side of what you would think a serious comic book movie would be. Yes, exactly. He, he gets a lot more use out of pizzicato strings than, you know, certainly than, for example, uh, Hans Zimmer does when he scores a Batman movie. Oh, yeah. Well, this is the first time that the word dark, whatever it means, was stuck to comic book in the mass culture beyond the actual world of comic books. I know that, like, The Dark Knight Returns had been a couple years before that, obviously, is an influence on this. That comic book. The comic book, the Frank Miller thing that later became the title of the movies. But the idea of a comic book that is indeed serious or dark is a tonal space that needed to be established. Yeah, that's right. I think what he does here is better than all subsequent efforts in that direction because it's not in stubborn denial of the fact that comic books are fun and goofy yeah that's right at the same time that it's dark you can just feel him getting a kick out of everything every little scene like you said the pizzicato so this scene early on where jack who's not yet the joker he's just jack napier but he's already a crazy bad guy and eckhart the crooked cop face off in an alley and threaten each other william hootkins it's william hootkins who you made a point of asking if i knew (laughs) when we were in star wars right you said who's in star wars and raiders of the lost ark william hootkins yep that's the guy i got a question for you okay yeah yeah who is in batman and batman's direct competition at the box office in the summer of 1989 indiana jones and the last crusade huh uh, is it... Uh... You don't know, and I'll tell you this. I think this is original work. What? I tried to Google this. I don't think anyone else has observed this, and you can tell me that that's because it's wrong, but I believe I am correct. Oh, my gosh. Well, then I don't know. Tell you me. You don't know. John, leftmost mob boss in Batman, plays easily confused librarian in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Venetian librarian. <laughs> You know who I'm talking about. Leftmost? Yeah, that's right. Take a look-see. You're talking about the scene where Joker is confronting all of Jack Palance's old lieutenants? That's right. The scene in which he electrocutes the guy with his hand buzzer. Okay, yeah, I'm watching the shot. It's pulling back along the length of this long conference table. Uh, Wait till it pulls all the way back. And I say starting with this festival oh my god it's the guy who stamps the library <laughs> it's, the guy, it's the guy who thinks his stamp is making a really loud noise <laughs> that is totally that guy he was in both the wow. blockbusters of that summer which were in hot competition and i believe here's what's really striking that he is absolutely uncredited in either movie the name of that actor is not not knowable right in if you know the name of that actor. <laughs> wow well that is a find andy <laughs> thank you so him plus William Hootkins can make some kind of circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, character actors are a flat circle. Okay, what were you saying about the scene with William Hootkins? So the Shut scene with up. Hootkins, the scene where Listen. Eckhart and Jack are grumbling at each other. Are we just need kind of, we're in the den of bad guys and there might be violence at any time That's music. And listen to what Elfman is doing here with these off-kilter, pizzicato, you know, I answer to Grissom, not to Psychos. Why, Eckhart, you ought to think about the future. It's not just scary. It's kind of, to me, that's the sound of delight at getting to watch such a scene, kind of bubbling up Hmm. in the scene. T. 
to me, there's a impish glee in almost every bar of the score, no matter what's going on. And it plays to me as kind of sharing with the audience a glee at like, look what kind of scene you get to watch now. Yeah. Like when the camera zooms up the side of a building to the first time we see Jack Palance's office. Oh, it's just going to be a model shot going up the side of the building. Danny Elfman explodes with delight. Lou, I get to do this. I got to admit that that particular mode of exploding with delight was very, very hard for me to not hear as out of the Simpsons theme every time he did it. It's because it's these whole tone scales. The whole tone scales, these runs going, it's always going to be The Simpsons to me. Which, of course, hey, Danny Elfman wrote The Simpsons theme, we should mention. I think that Danny Elfman, because of The Simpsons theme, has kind of dialed down the whole tone stuff over the course of his career, I think to the detriment of his output. (laughs) I think in these early scores, no one rocked the whole tone scale like Danny Elfman. He is so thrilled with it. Usually the whole tone scale, which the quick technical lesson is the whole tone scale means a scale where every step of the scale is the same distance apart, the distance between C and D on the piano. Right. You just keep going that distance. You're not going back and forth between whole steps and half steps. There's only whole steps. Sounds like this. It has this floaty sensation it gets used for flashbacks and dreamy people getting conked on the head Mm -hmm. that's right that's the scale that you hear a harp going on when somebody goes i remember when danny elfman has a way of using whole tone scales that's just bursting with excitement it's like things are so crazy i can't stand it it's awesome I think you're right. It reflects this underlying joy that he has about the scene that we get to watch, yes. But, you know, I think it also comes from his personal joy at they're letting me score a movie. Yeah, that comes through. I think that that sense that getting to score a movie is a pretty cool thing to get to do. And a movie score is a pretty delightful object is baked into the score itself. And Mm. I think that in his early scores, especially when indeed he wasn't exactly schooled in what he was doing and he was making it up on the fly, there's an energy to that. There's a thrill to it. Yeah, I mean, listen to the energy of this. The lead in to that moment with the Batmobile cue that we both said we liked. This is a new kind of an ostinato texture that he sets up. And then he adds these voices on top of it. Each layer that enters has this feeling of glee to it. They're happy to be there. Yeah, he also has a move that he does throughout these scores, which is when people score to timings, to picture, to editing, you know, you have to go 17 beats and at the 17th beat something happens. So the way you'll often do that is you subdivide it into three bars of 4-4 and then one of Mm 5-4 so that you can catch the thing at the end. And you build up to that. He just loves doing that. He (laughs) loves the energy of things building up steam and then going off kilter and suddenly jumping to a different track. Oh, here comes more and more instruments, and no, we suddenly changed the rhythm. He will do that to catch almost insignificant cuts. He will make a huge to-do and interrupt the flow just because it's gratifying. 
this thing with the winds going little, uh, that's like a shiver that he uh, keeps shivering he keeps feeling it and it feels sincere every time it happens yeah it's totally sincere and you know again this stuff all if you're taking a sort of fine tooth classical comb to it it sounds a little rough around the edges unpolished in the way it's pieced together but even that is I think part of the charm part of the attraction of it his chops of what he wants things to sound like are undeniable. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. There's something sort of magical about this because it's so rare to have just the right amount of knowledge yeah. that you can still convey your immoderate enthusiasm mm -hmm. without things falling apart. To be able to keep the machine going and still have it kind of seem like something, a, not a kid made up, but yeah, you know, you can hear, there's a naive quality to yeah, it. Yeah, naivete, you can hear little bits of naivete peeking through where you wouldn't quite use those instruments that way if you were taught not to. Yes, but in breaking the rules you end up discovering things that once your ear gets used to it, once everyone else's ear gets used to it, oh well, maybe that, uh, that can be a new exception to the rule. It doesn't have to be considered breaking it. Yeah. I think if you look at Danny Elfman, who has now scored hundreds of movies and has been working for a very long time, I mean, he works consistently every year through to the present day. If you work at something for 40 years, you can't help but become expert at it. But the thing he's expert at is this Danny Elfman stuff that he kind of came to in these early scores by piecing it together out of thin air. You know, John... Maybe we should take a little break now without actually taking a break, because I have something to say about this. The best kind of break. The best kind of break. No break at all. Yeah, let's listen to a more recent Danny Elfman track. So what we're listening to now is his classical violin concerto that he wrote a couple years ago. He called 1111 because that's how many bars it is. It's 1,111 bars? That's right. And he said that he gave it that title because to him 11 has a magical significance because his name Elfman means uh, 11 man in German. Oh. You know, I think this is kind of a cool piece. And while we're listening to it, I think it would be a great time to mention our sponsor. Yeah, that's right. We've got a sponsor now. We're very happy to talk about the Sheet Music subscription streaming service service Encoda. Encoda is a subscription service just like Spotify or Netflix that gives you access to a huge library, over 100,000 works, millions and millions of pages of sheet music. Sheet music of all sorts of different genres of music, classical pop, and in fact, this very piece of music by Danny Elfman. That's right. You know, Encoda is great if you want the best editions of classical repertoire, if you want orchestral parts that are hard to get. But another thing it's great for is recent music that you really couldn't see any other way. You can study every detail of the score. If you're listening to this and you think, how did Danny Elfman do that? What instruments is that? What meter is this? What notes are in that crazy chord? <laughs> we're looking at them right now and we could tell you, but we're not going to tell you. <laughs> the only way for you to find out is go sign up for Encoda and check it out. Search Danny Elfman Concerto and you'll be able to flip through this at your leisure. Or search for anything else you might want to find. Go to your app store and download the Encoda app. That's N-K-O-D-A. And sign up for their free trial so you can check out their catalog. Cool. Okay, back to what we were talking about. I think that his technique, for all that it has rough edges, mm -hmm. those rough edges, like I said, they bring some of the comic book thrill to this. Yeah, that's true. It's not somber, but it's also not a joke. 
It's trying to show you how the idea of a dark comic book world is like a playground. And does the playground have a dark secret? Are you the dark secret? (laughs) The mysteries of the mind, the mysteries of identity. We don't have anything to say about them, but we can evoke them. We can suggest them that we can say they're over there and they are why this is all worthwhile. You know, they talked about the producer. Boy, they really would have preferred to have, you know, John Williams write some Superman-style music for this movie. They would have preferred to have someone better established than Danny Elfman. I don't think anyone else could have quite made this sale sing the way it does. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this idea of his naivete was an enormous asset for him, you know, combined with his obvious actual underlying skill at distilling the mood and hitting the beats, it really was kind of a magical mixture. All right, let's quick touch on the things that people are like, why didn't you mention that? So there's two things associated with the Joker. One is that they play Stephen Foster's Beautiful Dreamer for his obsession with Vicki Vale which I read was Tim Burton's idea, not Elfman's idea. That's right. But the kind of sardonic winking attitude of it fits, I think fits pretty well with the constant winking of the score, don't you think? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a disturbed reverie. (laughs) Yeah, it feels weird in a very Burton-esque way. But hey, Andy, you got to have an aside where you asked me if I noticed something that connects to a different movie. Here we go. Where we go? Wherever you're taking me. Do you know where it is? No. Do you know what other composer that we have already talked about on our show makes an appearance in this movie? I do, yes. Oh, I thought that you would. Yes. We get to hear Theme from a Summer Place by Max Steiner. By Max Steiner? Can you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> the Joker, when he's sitting down at the restaurant in the museum with Vicky Vale, he turns and presses play on his boombox. Sure this starts playing. Today. Is that your portfolio? I'm meeting it's someone. It's a very famous melody. It's much, much more famous than the movie it's from, which is called A Summer Place, and this tune is called Theme from A Summer Place, and it's by Max Steiner, of all people. It is. Anyway. And then the other, why didn't you mention it, is <laughs> the Joker has this waltz. The first time he reveals himself and kills Jack Palance because now he's crazy. Well, that's not why. He gets revenge on him. Yeah, Jack Palance had it coming, of all people in this movie. Jack Palance had it coming to him. This is the Joker's reveal scene. We saw him from behind. We saw him cackling after his terrible surgery. But then he comes out of the shadows. Jack is dead, my friend. Jack Palance winces, why do you look like a clown? And then he shoots him, shoots him, shoots him. (laughs) And we hear this carnival music, carousel music. as you can see, I'm a lot happier. Yeah, this is such a strong move. This is such an assertive thing to say in the movie for Elfman to put here. And then, you know, he comes back to it crucially also in the climactic scene in the top of the cathedral. Yeah. But, you know, besides this overall vibe of adventure superhero, but also dark, but also quirky, but also fun, I think that this is his most important and assertive statement about the action, is that the Joker going nuts is a circus. Because it's like, what is the point of the Joker? I mean, he obviously nailed it because we're recording this on the eve of the release of yet another Joker movie, which I think was the working title. (laughs) You know, like the idea that, like, a clown... 
might be <laughs> scary. Like, it's so done. I never quite understood that. That's a thing. People are scared of clowns. It's like the scary clown is a thing. So one of Batman's enemies, get this, is a clown man. <laughs> clown man? Why didn't they call him clown man to go with Batman? <laughs> Batman v. Clown man. So for Danny Elfman to understand, again, what is the fun in that? Can I find the fun in like a crazed killer clown? And he did. He figured out how to get that tone across. And it's this remorseless, like, carousel circus waltz that has the bass drum and the cymbal smash on every beat. And it's fun, and the fun of the circus, in quotes. The sarcasm and the meanness of it is super, super clear. It seems so obvious in retrospect, but I can imagine the riskiness of that going into yeah. it. How do I build this to get this right thing across? Yeah, I mean, we talked about his acknowledging the influence of Nino Rota, and you can really hear that he's, you know, in one of his elements here. Yeah. I will say, to be honest, that you know, while I think it's a great choice when it first shows up when he kills Jack Palance, when it comes back again at length at the end, uh-huh. it's great on the album. It's great as like a cheeky musical finale. But in the movie, he's fighting like some random henchman yeah. who isn't the Joker. I don't know. I felt like this is the climax. This is the. I mean, I think thing. it really is more to do with the Joker crazily waltzing around with the inexplicably limp. Vicky Vale, who, like, it seemed like at one point they actually swap her out for a dummy because he's, like, muppeting her along, you know, around on the parapets there. It looks pretty funny. Anyway, it works for that. And then he gets to have, you know, another climax when they're uh, hanging off the side of the building and Joker's hanging off with a helicopter and then... Right, you get the vertigo suspension there, too. Yeah, he knew what he was doing with that. I mean, let's give a shout out to the final cue. We heard it earlier, but here's where he finally goes to major and gives us a nice 5 1. And he's basically doing uh, Zarathustra. Let's big Zarathustra. Yep. Right, exactly. But then jumps back to minor mm-hmm. to tell us what the real deal is. <laughs> you know, we reached the end of our story and. The Batman was victorious, but as we depart from Gotham City, you know, don't forget it's this minor chord. (laughs) It's just right. And again, thinking about how you plan that out, like, should we rise to a big minor triumph? Well, that might sound tragic somehow, and we haven't earned that. Well, should we end on a big major chord? Well, that doesn't seem right either. Well, how do we get from one to the other? This shotgun jump back to minor Mm -hmm. is smart, and it works, and uh, again, instinct. You know, I'll admit, Andy, that I think I came into this recording with a slightly less enthusiastic outlook towards the score than you had. I definitely liked it, and I definitely meant everything I said about my admiration for Elfman. But, you know, I found a couple of dumb little nits to pick as I was going through, and I did kind of have an experience as I was just listening to the music on its own, uh, just listening through the soundtrack of, like, all right, this is getting a little relentless and it felt a little bit kind of samey and (laughs) churning out a similar texture for a long, long time. 
But I really am glad that you kind of steered the conversation to a more appreciative tone because in talking to you about it, I think I realized that I really do share that opinion more than I knew. Yeah, it is more of a rarity when I like it more than you, right? How, how often does that happen? <laughs> this is one of those cases, it seems clear. And I don't, like I said, don't like this movie very much, but I think that it lands the fish, you know? Yeah. The producers had a grand vision and Danny Elfman brought a very unique energy to it that made that vision work. And I'm not sure anyone else could have done that. And look how much it's paid off for everyone. <laughs> I think he found exactly the right relationship of zaniness to seriousness for Gotham City and all that that entails. And I think that that relationship between zaniness and seriousness, like I said, between learnedness and naivete, between wildness and structure, hmm. it creates a bubbling excitement the whole time. And these textures that, yeah, are kind of just him spinning out his Danny Elfman stuff. This is prime Danny Elfman stuff. Yeah. His lights are on, you know, the lights in this guy's yeah, brain. Yeah, this one goes to 11. The, <laughs> I feel like the lights in his head are all on and you can feel him working and proving himself and... Proving himself, sure. I I think he's proving himself to himself as he goes along. And it's exciting. These sounds are, they're like the oral in-ear equivalent of a comic book. And if you are able to be excited by a comic book, you can be excited by these pulpy sounds. The fact that he puts across why the movie is fun, why the music is fun, and why movie music is fun is to me a prize that uh, that we win that i won by getting to listen to this here here that's what i'm here for and it gave it to me okay great i'll take it i'll sign up for all of that and i'm glad that you vibed me to how to really enjoy it as much as it should be which i did already but glad to hear you talk about it good john the time has come to move on yep. to non-bats and non-men well i bet there's gonna be some men you know yeah. hollywood is probably there mm. will be men but there shall be no bats all right I've got the bucket here. It's my turn to draw out of the bucket. Uh-huh. Let's, uh, let's set this sucker spinning and see what we get. Spin away. All right, I'm reaching my hot little hand in here. All right. The music's turning away. That's right. There it goes. I'm reaching in now, and the ball that I have picked out says on it. The Omen by Jerry Goldsmith. Ooh, great. I'm thrilled. Okay, is a scary movie, right? Yeah, it's a it's a bad seed type movie. It's like a devil child movie. Yeah, I haven't seen this movie. I have actually never seen this movie, but I know what the music sounds like. Sounds like the devil. Yeah, it's Jerry Goldsmith doing the devil in 1976. And the reason I haven't seen this movie is because... You don't like scary movies. I don't like scary movies. I think you can handle this one. Okay. That is my impression of The Omen. Having not actually seen it, I don't think that this is going to push your buttons all right well i guess i'll have to look forward to it then i'll have to <laughs> you can look forward to it with trepidation john yeah, i think i'm doing that right now be nervous about it be very nervous <laughs> about the omen i'm real good at that hey andy i think you managed to uh get off the hook of telling people to review our show and leave comments on twitter last episode we didn't do that oh did we forget to do it that's just my natural instinct yeah is to forget to do that john you know how it is people if they've ever listened to a podcast or indeed turned on their computer <laughs> they know that if you like something you can leave a review or a comment in this case no comments just reviews you can leave a review on itunes for example well you can leave a comment on twitter at score settlers where you can not only comment on things that we've talked about or maybe that we're about to talk about but you can also leave us suggestions for scores that you want us to throw into our bucket to draw out of 
It must have been quite a welcome respite last episode that uh, we didn't bother you about it. No more peace for you. We're immediately dispelling whatever goodwill we built up by not uh, prevailing upon you. Mm -hmm. That's certainly how I feel. You know, Andy, it just occurred to me, it's the middle of October now. What if we did the Omen episode as a Halloween episode and see if we can get it out for Halloween? We can see we'll get it out by around Halloween. Yeah, you know, it'll be like it'll be like a candy. You know, it's good before Halloween, and it's still good after yeah, Halloween. We'll get it out while there's still candy in the stores. There you go. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's you know, turn down the lights and get spooky and and have a spooky Halloween time with the Omen. Yeah, that's the that was the tagline. I think <laughs> have a spooky have a Halloween, Halloween time with, time the, with Omen. the Omen. <laughs> All right, let's do that. <laughs> see you then. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>